0: This is the American Association of Orthodontists, the Business of Orthodontics podcast, Episode 2. Welcome. This is Pam Paladin with Kevin Dillard, the General Counsel for the American Association of Orthodontists. Today's podcast will update you on a Supreme Court case heard recently and a discussion of some frequently asked legal questions. Kevin Dillard, welcome and thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you Pam, good day.
0: Up first we'll talk about the Supreme Court case King versus Burwell. Kevin, what what is this case? What does it concern?
1: Well, this is a case that about a year ago nobody really expected to go anywhere. The Supreme Court decided to take it and what it does in short, and in summary, is it is taking into question whether the subsidies that were put in place by Congress and signed into law under the Affordable Care Act, which I'm going to refer to as Obamacare just for ease. And I don't mean that to be pejorative. President Obama himself often refers to the law as Obamacare. But the the subsidies were passed by Congress to help make the insurance coverage that people get through either healthcare.gov or the state exchanges more affordable. You've often heard the radio ads or TV ads leading up to the end of open enrollment encouraging people to go and buy insurance. And they say that uh, up to 70% of uh, plans sold through the exchanges are eligible for subsidies. And these subsidies are taxpayer-funded subsidies, obviously, that help people in certain income brackets to knock off a certain percentage of whatever the cost of that care is. Well, here's the rub. When Congress passed that law, it said that the subsidies were only available to patients or customers who buy their health insurance through the state exchanges, where they said uh, subsidies are set up for those exchanges run by states, not for states. And this really all comes down to a one-word change, by versus for. So the subsidies are available to those exchanges bought set up by the states, not for the states. So what has happened is that there are only 13 states who run their own exchanges and the rest of the states are run by healthcare.gov. Now, the reason for that is that a lot of states looked at it, and they said it was too expensive, and they're going to pass it up, or for political reasons, they're Republican-led states, that they are going to let the federal government take the hit on this and let them run the federal exchange. So the proponents of this are the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, the ones who are challenging this, said that the clear language of the statute says that only those health insurance plans bought through the state-run exchanges are eligible for those subsidies. So therefore, if their argument is accepted, the health insurance uh, bought through every single other state run by healthcare.gov would not be eligible for those subsidies. And so that's that's kind
0: of in a nutshell what King versus Burwell is about?
1: It is in a nutshell, and, and lest there be any confusion about the massive economic impact that this could potentially have on the market. It's, it's a disruptive market force if they strike down the subsidies and they agree with the plaintiffs that the, or the the challengers to the law that these subsidies should only be allowed to those in the states. And by the way, the argument for that is, in most orthodontists would, would know about SCHIP or the State Children's Health Insurance Program. It's a common example of a federal-state partnership where the federal government puts apart a certain amount of grant money for states to use for certain purposes. And the federal government Because they can't directly tell states precisely how to spend their money in every instance, what they say is, here's a block of money, and you can use this to do a certain program in your state if it meets certain minimum guidelines. If you uh, use this money to provide health insurance and dental insurance to children and minor children who meet a certain poverty level or a certain income level, then you get a matching grant from the federal government. But only if you do this. And the proponents of this lawsuit say that this is exactly what was happening here, that, they, that Congress wanted the states to set up their own exchanges because they didn't want the government, the federal government, to have to put up the healthcare.gov and be the main role or play that main role in being the broker. They wanted the states to do it. And so that's why they set up those uh, incentives, that only those purchase through the states. Now, of course, the defenders of the law say, uh, that that too is just is nonsense. Anybody who reads this, I think Justice, Justice Breyer even said, anybody who reads this uh, statute could tell from the plain meaning that Congress intended the subsidies to go to everybody, regardless of where they bought the insurance.
0: What kinds of uh, possible outcomes are, are you anticipating from this case?
1: There's always the chance, Pam, that you, you could have a, a, a technical uh, issue, throw the entire case out. There was some discussion about whether any of the plaintiffs actually had standing and in standing it. That means you have to be actually injured. And if you're not actually injured, it doesn't matter if you have a slam dunk lock pack case. You know, you, the Supreme Court's going to hear it and say there's no injury, so we're going to throw this out. I doubt that's going to happen. I think it, the, the question is going to be either they uphold the law as it is uh, being interpreted currently, through the Health and Human Services, or they say all of the subsidies that are bought through the the federal exchange are now thrown out. Traditionally, the uh, Supreme Court decision, which will probably be announced in June, the, the effect of a Supreme Court decision usually, typically, historically, takes effect 25 days after the announcement of the ruling. If that happens, and if there is no... St- day of the decision. I know Justice Alito recently said, well, maybe we can can, uh, say in our decision that this will only or this will extend through the end of this tax year. It's possible. But I think the more likely effect is that all of these subsidies may run out 25 days after when the announcement is made in June. And if that happens, those people who are relying on the subsidies, their health insurance jumps dramatically at, at that time.
0: And that all hinges on one word,
1: it all hinges on one word, buy or for. Now, and also, Congress can also step in, and this is where it might benefit the AO. Congress can always step in and put together a package of fixes for customers, for, for citizens who are buying these, who are, who are relying on the subsidies, and, and do a federal fix or a federal bridge, perhaps, that would fix that statute for a specific time. You, know, you think a Republican Congress probably is not going to bail out the Obama administration. They're going to say this is a terribly written law. And they're now reaping the consequences of a terribly written law, if the Supreme Court agrees with the challengers to the law. And and therein lies perhaps an indirect benefit to the AAO. We've talked recently about the RAISE Act, which would dramatically increase flexible spending accounts. We've talked about the need to eliminate the medical device tax. All of these things were tied to Obamacare. And now we are advancing these arguments in in Congress, not only us, but the Chambers of Commerce, the ADA, the AMA, a bunch of other different business-minded Medical groups and small business groups all want these same changes. And I think the opportunity for the AO is to work with those leaders and get our changes in a fix that is ready to go in case of the Supreme Court agreeing with the challengers to the law. So that then we can look at, well, maybe we can get the RAISE Act or some of the main portions of the RAISE Act that we find the most valuable in that legislative fix. And there's enough political pressure perhaps in the president to sign the bill and extend those subsidies for all of those people who are expecting the subsidies. But in exchange, there are some things that the Republicans can get as well.
0: This is kind of speculation then as to things that could happen. We won't really know for sure what will happen until after the Supreme Court releases its decision, and you said probably in June. For right now, though, Kevin, uh, tell us uh, how much does the the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare actually cover orthodontics?
1: (laughs) That's a matter of great debate and a lot of confusion, and we are uh, well several years into the implementation of this, a staged implementation, and we really still don't know for sure. The essential health benefits package in the Obamacare-enabling legislation in in 2010 says that uh, primary dental health care, basically, must be covered under any health insurance program sold under the exchange, federal or state, to be qualified as, as coverage and qualified for the for the subsidies. And therein lies another issue uh, with, with the subsidies and who's eligible for the subsidies after this case is decided. They, in, in, in the legislation, it said it, it should also cover medically necessary orthodontics. But here's the controversy and here's the source of the confusion. It leaves it up to the states to determine what medically necessary orthodontics is. So you could potentially now have and there's a lot of confusion in those in those the majority of states that that offer the coverage through healthcare.gov how it interprets medically necessary orthodontics for instance there are states that i know of that now interpret medically necessary orthodontics as covering probably 70 or 75% of the entire population of the state, according some to some of the orthodontists that I know that I've, that I've, whom I've spoken to that, that serve on some of the advisory boards to health insurance companies and the governments and the state governments. There are other states who have said, we're going to keep it with uh, the indexes that we all know that that are tied to SCHIP again, the state children's health insurance program that cover really only the medically necessary when you think in, in terms of uh, cleft palate or, or serious craniofacial defects, where you have a score and you have to score so high and in those, those cases are reviewed by a state board to, to approve those insurance programs. Point being, you could live uh, in, in a place where you're very close to the border of, of another state, and your state could define medically necessary orthodontics radically different than that state right next door to you.
0: Sounds like it would be very nice to have a little continuity from one state to the next.
1: It would, uh, it would eliminate a lot of ambiguity in the interpretation of the law.
0: So we're going to look for a decision on this in June. And what kinds of out- outcomes do you think would affect orthodontics in general?
1: Well, I, again, I think if if the the Supreme Court agrees with the challengers, and it, I think either way, it's going to be a five to four decision. I think John Roberts, the Chief Justice, and uh, Anthony Kennedy are probably going to be the two swing votes. And and again, just to just to highlight the the economic the, the magnitude of this decision. On March the 4th, when this was argued before the Supreme Court, the stock market, the Dow, was literally moving up and down based upon Justice Kennedy's questions and how they expected or how they were interpreting his decision. And I think most people would say that he was skeptical of the challengers. And if Justice Kennedy is skeptical of the challengers, then it's likely that the law will be upheld as as written and as currently interpreted. Again, I think Republicans are not going to pass up the chance to to put together a legislative fix in anticipation of this. And hopefully the RAISE Act, uh, elimination of the medical device tax, and these things are thrown in there to say we're going to fund the subsidies, but we're also going to look at some of the ways – some of the other maybe ill-thought-out provisions of Obamacare that are hurting the industry, that are hurting the economy, hurting medical innovation on the medical device tax side of it can be dealt with and maybe revised so that we can all come together and have something that, that is a little bit more palatable and, and doesn't create those disincentives in the market for medical innovation and, and families being able to spend more pre dollars on health care.
0: Something I'm sure that we will be talking about a lot more in the future, uh, certainly uh, after June when the Supreme Court decision on King versus Burwell is announced. Kevin, thanks for that information. Let's take a short break. And when we return, Kevin will share some of the most frequently asked legal questions and answers.
1: What makes me smile? Cheeseburgers make me smile. My kids make me smile. And I like to smile. Thanks to my orthodontist. My dentist said go to a specialist. Orthodontists have the training. The experience. And the treatment options like clear aligners and braces. For my best smile. Now my smile makes me smile. For your
0: best smile, find an AAO orthodontist at mylifemysmile.org, the American Association of Orthodontists. Welcome back to Episode 2 of the Business of Orthodontics podcast. I'm Pam Paladin with Kevin Dillard, AAO's General Counsel. Some legal questions Kevin is most frequently asked have to do with divorce and split contracts. Kevin, we'll go into some of those. Let's review. Uh, first up, let's ask if uh, if parents are divorced and they have joint custody and they don't agree on their child having orthodontic treatment, can one parent make the decision to treat?
1: Pam, the answer is, with, as with many legal questions, is it depends. And before I get into the answer, I'm going to do a, a short disclaimer to say that this is all general legal advice we have a number of legal summaries on the aos website that go into uh, this this question how to treat divorced parents how to terminate a patient uh, proper procedures uh, even even different um, faqs regarding chemical usage and and things like that it's all very general legal advice i always encourage members to contact a local attorney because many of these issues like family law is they are they are Almost entirely under the purview of different states, but that said, on things like this, this is sort of general business advice that I think, regardless of states, this this kind of transcends everything, and I don't think uh, any state would say what I'm about to say is is inadvisable for anybody to do. So the question is, in a mutual, if if they have joint custody and one and there's some kind of disagreement over the treatment plan, really the answer is in the divorce decree, and. Somewhere in that divorce decree, there will be a statement that says either one parent, either the mom or dad or whatever, has the primary legal uh, ability to make treatment decisions for the child. And that, that goes to, for orthodontics. It goes for anything. Sometimes I've even seen divorce decrees that split it out. And say for major medical, one parent can, can have the ability to make the decision for elective procedures. And orthodontics is typically regarded as an elective procedure, then both parents have to mutually agree. Uh, So you really have to, when when you're presented with this in the office, I think you have to say, what is your, and and there's some kind of disagreement, you have to say, we need to see proof. We need to see a, a court document that says, who has the ability to make this decision?
0: It sounds like a very complicated issue and, and one that uh, would almost require having your own attorney on staff at all times to go through these divorce decrees because of the prevalence of divorce de- these days.
1: Divorce issues are as, as unfortunate as they are common, seems like, in, in these days in the orthodontic office. So
0: now let's go to another scenario, Kevin. Let's say that, that uh, two divorced parents have agreed on treatment, but they each want to pay half of the treatment fee so they want the contract set up that way. Is it a good idea for uh, orthodontists to work out separate contract agreements with each parent?
1: No, it's not. In fact, I would say it's a terrible idea to do that. And the reason I say that is because if you have, and it's typically that it's a 50-50 arrangement or sometimes a 70-30, whatever it is, most of the time that I hear about it, it's it's a 50-50 arrangement. They want two separate contracts. And let's just pick out an easy number. The orthodontic treatment is going to be $5,000 on their child. The mom wants to be responsible for 2500 The dad wants to be responsible for 2500 And they want the orthodontic office to be the bill collector and the arbitrator somewhat of, of their divorce decree. Now, it's a bad idea because if you're rolling through treatment and the child is showing up for appointments and has perfect hygiene and it's it's going to be a good case – Particularly if you're talking about surgical or extraction case. And let's say the mom is current on her account and paying everything she should, but the dad has never paid a dime. Now you've got a problem because the mom is upholding her into the contract, but you're only getting half of what you were contracted to be paid. So if you now terminate, then you're faced with a very difficult decision. You can terminate the treatment because you're not getting full payment, but then if you do that, you're breaking the contract with the mom who is paying. So by far the better option is to never do a split contract. Do one of two things. Have one parent be responsible for the entire amount. And if in their divorce decree that uh, it says that they each are liable for 50% of treatment, let the parents work it out between themselves. Dad can pay the mom on whatever they work out. It's none of the orthodontist business. Doesn't need to be the orthodontist business. They don't need to be the mediator in a a post-divorce situation the other way you could go about doing it is add both parties on the contract is jointly liable. So that means that if any one party, you, you don't care who pays you the money, you just care that you're getting the money. So it could come from the mom, it could come from the dad, it can come from a grandparent. As long as the money is coming into that account on that contract, nothing is, is, is bad, the contract isn't broken, and they can figure it out themselves. So those are the options. Never do a split contract where one party or, or two or more parties who are responsible for a specific portion of of the total contract bill.
0: Where does one find a contract? Does this something like this have to be specifically drafted for each
1: situation? I, I would always suggest having a your your, con, your typical patient contracts reviewed by a local attorney. The AO does have a template sample patient contract forms online that you can use. You can also on a case-by-case basis on things like this, you can drop in extra lines here and there that make the intent clear to to evidence a meeting of the minds so that you can say both parties who sign this agreement, the mom and the dad, are liable either separately or jointly for the entire amount of the contract payment.
0: So we have divorced parents, they have joint custody, one parent signs the contract. Is the other parent entitled to receive any financial information regarding the account?
1: Probably not. Again, it depends upon the divorce decree. Most states separate out what is health insurance or what is health information, I'm sorry, and what is financial information. So most states have a statute that says that with a minor child, regardless of the custodial situation, both parents have the right to obtain medical information about the child, regardless of who's paying for the treatment. So in a typical situation, you have, let's say, a mom who has custody of a child who's in orthodontic treatment. That child's 14 years old, and the mom is paying on the account. She's 100% liable for that account. She put her name on the contract. She's paying that account. And the dad calls, and the dad wants to know about the treatment. In that case, most states have a statute that says, unless there's a court order to the contrary, that you are obligated to give the medical information about the child to the parent, regardless of what they're paying, regardless of whose name's on the insurance. More to, at least anecdotally from my experience, the the calls that I get, more often than not, there's some issue in the post-divorce situation with payments. And one party wants to know if the other party is making payments because they're maybe trying to advance an argument for financial irresponsibility in court for another custody hearing or something like that. And so they want to hear from the orthodontic office that the other parent is not meeting their obligations. And then the question is, which you pose, are you obligated to turn that information over? And the answer is, unless there's a court order saying that that parent has the ability to get the financial information, you say, I cannot give that to you. That is private information with, between a financial arrangement that we have with another party. We can release that information only if you have a court order saying to, saying that we have to, or if you present a subpoena to us for that information. And then even if you get a subpoena for that information, you may want to consider hiring an attorney or talking to the attorney that you have on retainer to see if it's possible to fight that subpoena and say that we don't want to turn that information over.
0: Sounds like you don't win friends on either.
1: (laughs) No, you don't. No, you don't. And often, Pam, divorce situations, it is not uncommon for one parent to try to get the orthodontic office and the orthodontic staff to side with them and to advance arguments and try to pit the one side against the other. It gets very ugly. And it, But it, again, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's also common.
0: Well, let's stay with the scenario of the divorced parents who have joint custody. In this time, mom signs the contract, but dad is the one who carries the insurance. So in this case, is dad entitled to receive any financial information on this account?
1: He would be entitled probably to get information based upon what his insurance is going to pay for. Be- because in that case he is a co-payor, so he would be entitled to whatever information his insurance is is going to. He probably would not be you would you would not be obligated most likely to give the dad any information about the private payment or the insurance, whatever the case may be that the mom is is paying for, only that portion of the bill that the dad's insurance payment is going towards.
0: So kind of along the same line, the parents are divorced. Mom signs the contract. Dad carries the insurance. Can Mom sign the insurance benefit assignment form?
1: She probably shouldn't. Uh, and and I, I think it's a red flag if something like that happens because you know most of the time, if it's a friendly situation, nobody's going to argue it. But if something goes sour and the dad comes back and finds out or or, or uses that as leverage to say, well, you accepted an insurance assignment on my insurance signed by somebody else who is not legally able to bind me. And therefore, you know, you could potentially even get into insurance fraud issues because the orth and unwittingly so, obviously the orthodontic office is not attempting to commit insurance fraud, but some states may interpret that as insurance fraud or even identity theft that you, that the office is complicit in. So it's important, especially when you know that there is a divorce situation going on, that The person whose name is on the insurance company needs to be on the assignment of benefits form.
0: Can someone other than the custodial parent bring the child to the appointment?
1: It's typically not a good idea to do this. I I think you can head a lot of this off. You can prevent a lot of issues with who you can give information to and who can bring patients to the office when they're minors by on the original patient acceptance paperwork. Have a place in that paperwork that says throughout the course of treatment, these people I, we can release medical information to. These people we can release financial information to. And these people are the people who are authorized to bring the patient to the office and sign them in so that it's clear. W- without that, it's not clear. And, and actually, that goes to the other issues. It, it prevents the issues with the, the dad's calling about the the payments or, or the mom's calling about missed appointments or something like that. Just make it clear in the paperwork for, at the very beginning and outline the expectations very clearly as to who can do what and when and where, so that you don't get into a situation where you have somebody shows showing up with with a patient that you don't know, and that the detriment to not having this clear is that let's say the grandmother brings a child to orthodontic treatment. Now, you, you nowhere in the paperwork does it say that that grandchild or that that grandparent can bring the grandchild to the appointment. You don't know what you're authorized to tell that grandparent. But let's say there's something of sensitive health information that needs to be conveyed through the patient, maybe a hygiene issue, maybe a periodontal problem, any number of things that need to be communicated to the responsible party. You, you don't know who to talk to. You don't know if you're able to talk to the grandparent. You don't know if you, if you talk to that grandparent and relay the information if you're going to get in trouble or if it's a HIPAA violation even. So therefore, at the beginning on all your paperwork, I think you should, on every single new patient, you should have it very clearly stated, let the let the responsible party say who you're able to release information to.
0: It sounds like that wouldn't be a bad idea across
1: the board. Across the board, every patient.
0: There are divorce situations, too, that can be uh, even more complicated if there's a step-parent involved. Can treatment information and, and those kinds of things be shared with a step-parent?
1: Same thing. I, I think this, this has got to be cleared, but you, the, the answer is I don't know, and it would depend upon... The divorce decree, not only the divorce decree, but the state laws regarding medical information and who the orthodontist is obligated to turn information over to. But again, this all can be cleared by clear paperwork at the beginning of every single patient saying, again, who you're able to release information to. And by the way, that doesn't just apply to minors. If you're an adult, it's also necessary to put on their emergency contacts, who the doctor's office can contact to talk about medical emergencies, if one unfortunately should arise. Because if you don't have anything like that on the paperwork, the orthodontic office doesn't know who to contact or who they can say, who they can convey your perhaps emergency medical condition to.
0: This is a fascinating area. I'm sure we could go on with lots more questions on this. But if people do have other specific questions, can they contact the legal department here at AAO?
1: They can. We have... And Before they do that, I would encourage them to go online and look at our legal summaries. We have very specific legal summaries that, that offer general guidance. Again, most of these you might need and you often do need a local attorney who specializes in family law in this case or contract law to go through very specific issues. But for general guidance, go online under the Legal and Advocacy tab of the AAO's member website. You can find a number of legal summaries. We spend a lot of time talking about divorce and split contracts. You can find template contracts on there and and things that I think will help your practice.
0: And the uh, website address is aaoinfo.org. Your login is your email address that's on file with the AAO and then whatever password you've set up. That's a wrap for our second episode of the AAO's The Business of Orthodontics podcast. Thanks to Kevin Dillard, AAO's general counsel. Join us for future episodes. We'll review topics such as more frequently asked legal questions, breaking news, risk management, and more. If you have subject areas you'd like addressed on a future podcast, please email them to info at aaortho.org or call 800-424-2841. This is Pam Paladin. Thanks for listening to the Business of Orthodontics podcast, Episode 2.